So as promised from two weeks ago, today I want to explore what I, what I want to call enemies practice. That is, practice with difficult people, opponents, enemies of any kind, ranging from ourselves to geopolitical figures. <laughs> and this, is, this comes from the uh, request of the group, I remember, in the last few weeks to, to explore this topic. And I think it's a particularly appropriate to uh, topic at this time of year because it's really about, um, it's really about peace. And it's about um, working for peace where peace seems least there in our personal experience or in our larger collective experience. So I want to begin just with a very short guided meditation. So if you can take a comfortable posture. And reflect on an interaction that you have with a person that you would call difficult or an opponent or even an enemy, someone with whom there's some kind of conflict uh, of a persistent or even chronic kind. And it could be someone who you're close to, could be a coworker, could be someone in your community. Again, it could be a political figure, a public figure of some kind from this country or another country. And bring that, bring that person to mind. Get a sense, if you can, of what it feels like to you when there's some kind of conflict with this person. You might visualize or imagine yourself talking to this person Or if it's someone you haven't met, perhaps reading or um, observing on television. And get a feel for what it's like, this interaction. What happens in your mind? What kind of thoughts are there? What happens in your heart? <coughs> what happens in your body?
what helps you with this or perhaps another conflict in the past, what helps you to be less reactive or what helps you to move towards resolving the conflict in terms of what you do internally? Might be reflection or meditation of some kind. What helps you internally with difficult people or enemies? What helps you in your actions or interactions? We might say more externally. What are skillful ways to act with this person, if you've found any? Or perhaps that you know from the past with others. What I'd like to do this morning, using these um, reflections and um, visualizations as the material, what I'd like to do is to um, talk some about how we might take our relations with difficult others or with enemies as spiritual practice, as continuous with our meditation practice. So I'd like to talk more generally about the, what happens when we form enemies and the alternative of working through those kinds of relationships, those more dualistically structured relationships. And then in the second part of the talk, I want to give a very concrete um, set of five steps to take to work with enemies that you can take home with you wrap up as a gift and give to others. <laughs> so that's, that's my intention for this morning. And, and what I'd, I'd love to hear when we talk together about some of what has worked for all of us um, in terms of um, working through our difficult relationships. This is an important topic for, for a lot of reasons, but I think one, one way to look at it is that at a certain point in our spiritual evolution, and it may not be always a beginning point, although for some of us it might, at a certain point in our spiritual practice and our evolution, we become very interested in how we lose it. We're, not, we're less interested in being wonderful, good people, but we're really interested in what happens when we lose it, when we're reactive, And at a certain point, we become students, zealous students of our own reactivity. 
<laughs> and I'm encouraging that. <laughs> uh, we find that uh, our relations with difficult people or with enemies are a prime location for losing it. And hence, at a certain point, this can become a very interesting area so that we actually say, oh, I have this difficult relationship, this difficult person. Wonderful. A chance for spiritual growth. Don't go away <laughs> too soon, but at the right time, go away or, or, or become my friend or whatever. So, um, so it's really important. Uh, and it's, it's, I th- again, I think this may be a more intermediate or even advanced place of practice where we say, I'm having a difficulty. I'm losing it. Let me look into it. Let me study my own. Uh, let me count the ways that I lose it. Let me find out how I lose it, how I'm reactive. So th- what, what actually do we find when we look at what it means to have an enemy? What occurs, it seems, is that we form a kind of a duality. I mean, there are a lot of things going on, but what we find is that there's a duality. It typically has a very simple structure. I'm right, you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Along with that basic unifying structure, which we could call a structure of dualism, there are manifestations in the thoughts in our hearts and our bodies. We have certain thoughts which are basically polarizing thoughts. Again, they can be thoughts of a moral kind. I'm good, that person is bad. Or it could be, it could be primarily focused on how bad the other is. You know, if you, you know, I have certain friends who watch the current president of the United States and just go into immediate judgments typically leading to immediate turning off of the television set. You know, and, and there are other people who have that kind of uh, reaction with people at the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, but they're, you know, usually we have polarizing thoughts. They are often very adamant. They're one-sided. And they're, they're important to study. You know, in our emotions, we have, cert- we have typically what? Anger? Um, kind of uh, righteous indignation, judgment, sometimes even hatred. Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, depending on our approach, we might also go into depression or, or sadness with, with, with um, difficult people or enemies. And so, but the, the basics uh, are that there's some kind of polarization. Our bodies might become uh, tense. Think of how you feel in an actual interaction with someone who's very difficult. You know, often our bodies tense up, and that the core is that there's uh, some kind of uh, there's some kind of polarity happening. You know, and it's you know it's very obvious when we look to the uh, collective realm. We can see how widespread is the need to find an enemy who is bad and we are good. You know, it's not very hard to find, and it's actually very sobering to look and to see that even, you know, even people who are supposedly uh, progressive, they have the same structure. You know, I'm good, you're bad, we're good, they're bad. Um, you know, uh, I want to bring about justice, they're unjust. I want freedom, they don't. 
and so forth. And it's very striking. And there's, there's this incredible book, um, some of you may know, called um, Faces of the Enemy by Sam Keane. It's called Reflections on the Hostile Imagination. And what he does in this book is that he brings together a lot of images of enemies that have, ex- that have particularly manifested in uh, posters, especially propaganda posters in the 20th century. And so we can see how in order to have someone be an enemy in this larger scheme, we have to make uh, the enemy um, fit one of a few categories. The enemy becomes a monster. The enemy becomes <coughs> a, um, an animal, someone who's non-human. The enemy becomes some kind of criminal or gangster or terrorist. The enemy becomes a barbarian. Or the enemy becomes some kind of expression of evil. You know, and in these posters, you can, you can see these um, images. You can see very powerfully. You can see how the Nazis, for example, portrayed uh, Jews as, uh, as rats and vermin. How um, in the early part of the 20th century, African Americans were gorillas. How um, Soviets became bears. Japanese uh, were rats. Um, in Soviet propaganda, capitalists became running dogs. You know, um, and in the 1960s, um, leftists saw police as pigs. And you can see all the, all that way of sort of dehumanizing. You can see how, you know, and when you look through these, you can see how many you know people saw the Americans in Vietnam as criminal gangsters. They saw Israelis became Nazis. Um, Germans in, the, in World War I became barbarian Huns. Um, Muslims became all terrorists, you know, sort of all these enemies of civilization and, and of us. And you can go on like that. It's not very hard to see how that is so widespread. And it's actually, a lot of it is not even so obvious. I was just reading the newspaper this morning. And you'll see, if you look to the descriptions of what's happening in Iraq, you'll commonly see the insurgents described as virulent. You know, they're described as viruses. Um, I don't think you'll find in those newspaper accounts the Americans described as diseases. But probably in the Iraqi um, resistance, you'll probably find the Americans described as cancer-like, cancer-like invasion. And you see, so what is happening, even with our newspapers that purport to be objective, they're buying into the structure of duality. And they're presenting it as objective and descriptive, but it's really presenting us with a picture that leads us to take these people as enemies and as opponents. It's pretty, um, I mean, it's sometimes subtle and sometimes not so subtle. And so we know that, we could ask, what's wrong with for having enemies? Don't we need to have enemies? And it's, I think we have to kind of look carefully to see what um, the difficulty is with forming these, these, um, these dualisms. Because I think all of us do this, and a lot of my own learning about this was studying my own tendency in difficult um, conflicts with people, you know, at work or even within my own family, and to see just what happens when we enter that mode, which hopefully we don't do too much, but, but it's, it's something that's very informative. And I, you know, in, in some ways, when I enter my own conflicts like this, I'm not sure that I'm very different from those newspapers reporting the enemy as virulent. You know, or if we look honestly at ourselves, 
don't we go into something like that enemies mode with people where we're reactive, we judge, we're one-sided, and so forth. And so it's this uh, very powerful work to, to cut through that. So what's problematic about that? Um, what happens when we do that is things become one-sided. We tend not to see our own shadow material. We tend to project everything bad on the other person. Um, we actually often don't see that which is very similar to our opponent. You know, one of the wonderful questions to ask about our enemies is, how am I like my enemy? Thomas Merton said this. Uh, he wrote this very short essay, uh, I think at the beginning of the 1960s, called The Root of War is Fear. And he said it was not just fear of the other, but fear of ourselves. So this is what he said. It is not only our hatred of others that is dangerous, but also, and above all, our hatred of ourselves, particularly that hatred of ourselves which is too deep and too powerful to be consciously faced. For it is this which makes us see our own evil in others and unable to see it in ourselves. It's kind of obvious when we look to political events, but it's, it's also something we can ask about in relation to our own, our own difficult people, our own enemies. Um, and again, it's something that we can see in our own interactions. It's something that we can see sometimes even in our organizations. You know, one of the most sobering um, realities that I've experienced is how sometimes we find these conflicts in our progressive political organizations or our wonderful spiritual communities. And when we find those kind of conflicts, when we find forming enemies there, it is very, very, um, sometimes very distressing. Because it's like we carry this energy inside us. And we like to think that when we enter Spirit Rock or we enter an organization that we really care for, these dynamics leave. But they don't. I think we know that, right? And so this is, this is a very powerful kind of work. The, one of the uh, beauties of the Dharma or the meditation practice and the way it's been extended also into the social realm is that I think this um, working with enemies or difficult people is right at the heart of practice. You know, and there, there, there are these famous lines from the Buddha uh, in the Dhammapada where he says, he abused me, he beat me, he, he defeated me, he robbed me. And those who harbor such thoughts hatred will never cease. In other words, basically, if you brood and you judge the other and continue with that, you're keeping the cycle of hatred going. You're keeping the enemy structure going. He says, he abused me, he beat me, he defeated me, he robbed me. And those who did not harbor such thoughts, hatred will cease. Then he goes on with this very famous line, hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred only ceases by love. This is an eternal law. And so what I want to do is sort of unpack that, really. And it's not to say that we don't act with a difficult person. It doesn't mean that we're passive or we're resigned or that we don't respond. Um, But we can really take the difficult person as a chance to work with our own reactivity, our own hatred. In the Mahayana tradition, this is maybe even more uh, prominent and the wonderful uh, writer, teacher, practitioner from the 8th century Shanti Deva, who is the Dalai Lama's favorite 
writer. He wrote this book, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, A Guide to the Way of Life of Someone Who Would Connect uh, Inner Work with Helping Others. And he said this, because uh, he thought that um, working with um, difficult people and enemies was particularly important for developing patience. And the Dalai Lama talks a lot about that. He said that to do, to really work in this way, um, we develop patience, which is one of the core qualities um, of a bodhisattva. It's one of the, one of the uh, ten qualities uh, that are developed in the um, Theravada tradition, the so-called paramis, or excellences. So it's very high on the list. In fact, patience um, is, I think, second on the list, if I remember right. Um, and this is what Shanti Davis said. Just like treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my behalf to obtain it, I should be happy to have an enemy. Like treasure appearing in my house without any effort on my part, I should be happy to have an enemy, for he assists me in my conduct of awakening. Different attitude, right? Rather than, you know, can imagine Shanti Deva in a guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life saying, Enemies, go away. But no, he says, I welcome them like, like unbidden treasure. And the Dalai Lama very much had that view, and it's, he's famous for having that attitude in relation to the Chinese, you know, who have invaded his country, killed a sixth of the population, and, and contributed to something that can only be called cultural genocide, bringing in, you know, uh, native Chinese to settle in Tibet so that Tibetans no longer even have their own country. And the Dalai Lama, at the same time that he acts very forcefully to bring about autonomy, he says this about um, working with an enemy. He says, in dependence on a spiritual teacher, you can form an understanding of patience, but you don't really have an opportunity to practice patience. The actual practice of implementing patience only comes when you encounter an enemy. In order to develop true and unbiased love and compassion, you must develop patience, and this requires practice. Therefore, you should think of your enemy as the best of spiritual teachers. Considering this person to be kind, view your enemy with respect. Mm. <laughs> you ready? Kind of think of bowing to your enemy. So I want to talk about um, a few different ways to do enemies practice. And I was thinking of this, and I think that there are five, as far as I could see, five steps to enemies practice. And here's what they are. First is, form the intention to learn from your enemy. Form the intention to learn with a difficult person, as well as to act in a responsive manner. Secondly, reflect on various aspects of your relationship to the enemy and particularly why it's not so helpful to keep the dualism, the antagonism going. So the first is the intention to learn. The second is reflection on some qualities of having an enemy. Then thirdly, look at your own internal experience. What actually happens when you have an enemy? Study your own particular patterns uh, with the difficult person or enemy. Fourthly, start to work to transform those patterns, to transform essentially the reactivity. And fifthly, begin to practice in your actions as well. Begin to practice externally 
with the difficult person. We probably could take about an hour or two on each of those five steps, but I will try to take a minute or two or three or four on each of them. So the first one I think we've really uh, suggested is to have that attitude of Shantideva uh, or the Dalai Lama. Can I take the presence of my difficult person or my enemy as an invitation to, to practice, to, to learn? You know, and I've told the story, I think, a few times of how one of the, the main formative experiences for me was when I had a really difficult person with whom I worked. And I had to see this person for about three or four hours every two weeks. And, and I w- it, was actually, uh, it was actually the president of the school where I was teaching. And I was um, chair of the entire faculty. And I had to meet with this person. The person actually, it didn't, wasn't so significant then, but the person actually happened to be named uh, President Bush. <laughs> which, which would have been, the timing was in between the father and son, so it wasn't quite so intense. But anyway, there I was interacting with President Bush every two weeks for about two years, and it was a difficult interaction because I felt like he was very authoritarian, didn't listen to me well. This should all stay here, by the way. I think you know that. Um, and we'll worry about the tape later. <laughs> um, but he wouldn't listen to me. And I, I, I just found I would become very reactive. Uh, some, you know, sometimes I would, and it, it was, but often I would. And, and it was um, after a while of just sometimes losing it. And my own, my own uh, preferred way of dealing with this situation was to withdraw, not really interact, kind of withdraw emotionally. And have an attitude of superiority and contempt mixed with uh, considerable judgment. <laughs> I'm probably the only one who ever experiences that. But, but, um, and so um, with the help of some mentors, I took this relationship as, a, as, a, as practice, basically. And I would go in and I would have the intention after it took a little while to kind of regain my ground and say, okay, what's happening here? What's happening with me? But after a while, I began to take it, have the intention to practice. And so I would actually say, okay, Donald, you sometimes say you don't have enough time for spiritual practice. You're too busy. Those days when you go in there, consider that a retreat. (laughs) And so I'd go in and I would be, I'd do meditation in the morning. I'd go in on BART to San Francisco and I'd be doing walking meditation. I'd just be, you know, try to be very present. I'd say, okay, no matter what happens, I'm just going to try to be mindful and aware. And so I had the strong intention to practice with my difficult person. Okay. So that's the first thing. Form a strong intention to learn <coughs> from the situation. It doesn't mean that you're always going to be aware. What happens with difficult people or enemies is that we get into very deep reactive patterns and we lose it. And it's only maybe sometimes Later in the day, a day later, three days later, we actually realize what happened. So it's okay to lose it. But the intention is, let me learn from this experience. So the second, the second um, help is to actually do some reflections about being with the difficult person or the enemy. Um, you might reflect, for example, on the fact that um, there's suffering um, for both of us. It's helpful to reflect that this is, this is actually that the other person is probably also suffering. If there's some antagonism, it's going to be difficult for that person. You can reflect that you're suffering. And it might be a reason to actually say, I want to transform this, to reflect on your own suffering. 
a second reflection um, can be to realize that you're tending to think that this person is always going to be the way he or she has been for all of eternity, will never change. Do you notice how you, we do that with enemies or difficult people? We think this person is always going to be that way. Um, this is not true. Sorry. It's, <laughs> it, it's, um, people change. I mean, you can think of, do you remember, some of you know, know the story of how George Wallace, this arch-segregationist, later changed radically um, for, for a variety of reasons and became someone who was very, uh, very uh, friendly in the latter part of his life to African Americans. Um, Gandhi, when he was taking on nonviolence, he said, I don't want to take my enemy in a fixated way because I want to approach my enemy as a potential friend. And one can reflect that it's possible. And, and King was the, Martin Luther King was the same way. He said, I want to approach people who are my opponents and act in a way so that in the future they may become friendly. And I actually, my own experience, and maybe yours, is some of the people where there's been a serious conflict and where we've actually gone into it and worked through it are actually, there's something that gets um, transformed and they've actually become actually very close and actually have become friends. Now it takes both ha would have to have that attitude, and it's not always the case. But one can reflect that the enemy may not always be as the way the enemy is, or the opponent, or the difficult person. We can also uh, reflect, if we wish, about the, the interdependence of things. We can reflect on the causes and conditions that led us to this conflict, particularly to take, have an attitude of, let me reflect on the causes and conditions which brought the difficult person to be difficult. It's actually bringing ourselves to uh, not just take the difficult person as a, or the enemy, as this um, awful force of nature, but as a, as a person in his, right or, in his or her own right. You know, a person who is, in some ways, trying to do the best he or she can which, of course, we totally don't believe. <laughs> but to consider, okay, consider, let me consider the web of causes and conditions. What brought President Bush, in my case, to act like he, he did? Later I found out, I don't know how much this influenced it, but near the end of the two years, he actually um, developed a brain tumor and died. And it's hard to know how much of his behavior was connected with the early manifestations of the brain tumor. Right? We don't know. There's a lot we don't know about the causes and conditions. Sometimes we can imagine them, and, the, uh, and really it can help sometimes with compassion or easing the dualism. At a certain point, we have to move to the third phase, which is to really look carefully at what's happening when we're with the enemy or with the difficult person. We have to begin to see what's happening internally. In my case, this was to start to really look at that whole structure of experience whereby I became reactive, the way where I became judgmental, angry, and so forth. We have to really study. Now, our usual attitude is what? The, the difficult person is causing me problems 
all my problems would be over if the difficult person would either leave or change, one of the two, or both, preferably. <laughs> and we tend to take the difficult person or the enemy um, as causing a problem which is purely external, right? Guess what? We contribute to it. We contribute to the fact of the problem. And what we can look at is our own, basically our own stuff. The Buddha, for example, said, you know, he talked about how at the end point of this development, one can still have enemies, but one has worked through one's own reactivity. And so the Buddha said at one point, I do not fight with the world, but the world fights, still fights with me. So even when you become a Buddha, you're going to have enemies. The Buddha had enemies, had people who tried to kill him. And so what that is pointing to is that even where the other person bears a lot of responsibility, we have to take some responsibility for our own reactivity. That's at the heart of our practice, really. And so what we need to do is to look carefully. And sometimes we can, near the beginning stages of enemy's practice or difficult person's practice, what we can do is actually go into a situation. I think we can do this in the situation, or sometimes we can do it in the meditation and say, what am I actually experiencing with this person? And in my situation, I have to really look carefully and say, okay, because at first it's kind of hard to, hard to see. Everything just comes really quickly, right? The, the standpoint, the experience with enemies usually feels like an ambush, right? It's like there's a short interaction and all of a sudden, you know, something happens and there's friction and whatever. And what we have to do is to really look carefully at what's going on and see, okay, this is what's happening. Something was said, let's say, and some reaction occurred. In my case, it would be something, I said something, the other person didn't appear to listen, said something else, and I said, and I basically went into reaction, you know, of not being listened to. And we have to start saying, okay, what's really happening there? What's the reactivity? Okay, there's, there's judgment going on. Maybe there's some quality of, of hurt, of not being listened to. There's judgment, there's withdrawal, there's my body being tense, there's all this. We have to study that really intimately <clears throat> and see what's there. And I think that's the third phase of enemies practice. And we can do this watching the television with our favorite public enemy. <laughs> Whoever it might be, you know. Osama bin Laden or whomever, you know. Donald Rumsfeld is currently high on the list for many people. And and we, we have to we can look what's going on with what's going on with that? What's really happening? In my, in my heart, in my body, in my uh, emotions, in my thinking. A fourth stage is when we actually start to be able to transform those reactive patterns. We've named, we've seen what the reactive patterns are, and then we can start to bring qualities of our mindfulness practice and maybe our metta practice to work with the reactivity. The, the third stage is really naming, seeing what's there. The fourth stage is finding ways to work with the reactivity that we have. It's to, and the main way of doing this, I think the main two ways of doing this are first mindfulness, which is really to look really, really carefully at the experience of reactivity that we have with a difficult person over and over and over again. I had to look at my experience with this person a thousand times, five thousand times, 
in meditation, in the real life situation, in kind of visualizations, and just really become familiar with it. And this is really the heart of what mindfulness practice does. We watch our reactivity over and over and over again. At a certain point, we start slowing down the process. In my case, I could start to see there there is a certain moment where, let's say, the person doesn't listen to me, and I actually, there's actually some pain which I actually don't usually feel. I go right to the judgment. And we can actually, no, I can actually begin to notice, oh, that really didn't feel very good. And I slow down the process where I start to notice, oh, that really didn't feel good. And I can notice my mind starting to be reactive. Normally it's just bang, bang, right? Mm-hmm. And what we do with mindfulness is we slow down the process. We start to see the different steps of the process. We start to see the different... Um, as, as it were, um, steps in the, in the sequence. I start to see, okay, there's a stimulus not listening to me. Oh, there's some pain which touches sort of fairly old pain about not being listened to in my life, maybe. I start to touch that. As, oh, that feels painful. And I start to watch the reactivity. I start to be aware of it. At a certain point, I've watched it enough so that it doesn't happen automatically. And I can then choose, do I want to go with this reactivity now? I watch myself starting to be judgmental. Maybe my own pattern was to withdraw, partly because this was a person with authority. You know, with people with less authority, I would attack. <laughs> right? But the um, strategic move was to withdraw and be, kind of, well, why is, this, why, is, why is this guy president? Oh my God, he shouldn't be president. You know, blah, blah, blah. And then talk to other people, maybe. And so we slow down the process. We start to watch our reactivity over and over and over again, study it. And typically reactivity comes out of some kind of unacknowledged pain that's almost beneath the surface. So we start to find, you know, touch that pain. You can even look for, okay, what's really happening? What does that feel like? When you're with an enemy, you can ask that question, what does that really feel like? It kind of goes beneath the surface of the pain or of the, uh, of the reactivity. We touch that, we start to just hang out there over and over and over again. And in time, that will tend to transform the reactivity. That's sort of the heart of the process. And probably of these five steps, that's what takes the longest and really takes the most support and work. The fifth step is at a certain point, we can begin to act in a more non-reactive manner. We can start to be with the difficult person in a new way. It may be, in my case, it would be if I, if I could actually not be reactive, I could tell him, um, you know, what I just said is an important issue for me. I'm not sure you entirely heard it, and I want to keep on making that point. That's a way of, act- that was non-reactive, pretty much, but it's a way of acting. So, so again, Doing this work with enemies doesn't mean just withdrawing. It means being able to act, but act in a, in a non-reactive way. This is at the heart of what Gandhi and King are doing in nonviolence. It's a way, it's a way of acting without reactivity. This is, I think, at the heart of what the Dalai Lama is doing. And it's really, we can think of just a number, you know, we could talk about ways to act in a hundred different ways, but what they're basically doing is, in an internal way, we're working to transform the reactivity. In an external way, we're taking steps, even small steps, to ease the dualism between self and other. 
You know, so it, it can often in our actions can be very small things. You know, one thing that I've sometimes used is to give a gift to my enemy. You're looking at me a little bit. You even have, um, what, three more shopping days to do it. <laughs> um, give a gift to your enemy. It's, it, it shifts the dualism some and eases something. And so I think if, if, you're, if any of us are in a polarized situation, personally or even with a, with, in terms of nationally, taking steps to ease the dualism <coughs> are wonderful. I just Maybe the last thing I'll say before closing, I just heard on the news today that <coughs> there were a group of people who were Iraq, U.S. veterans who were bringing aid of food and clothing and medicine to the displaced people of Fallujah. You know, 250,000 people whose homes have basically mostly been destroyed. And this group is, I would see that as an easing of the dualism. And we can think of ways to do that in small ways with our interpersonal relationships or larger ways in our national relationships. To me, that's a skillful act of a peacemaker to, to do that, to find ways to ease the, dual, the, the rigid dualism. And I think when we do that, and we could probably talk, again, we could talk for a week about skillful ways to, to work with difficult people or enemies, but it really is about um, finding ways to do both the internal work and then to be skillful uh, externally, and so that in the long run, our our difficult people, or our enemies, may become friends. So I think I'll I'll just uh, close with um, something that I I read from Gandhi. Acts of violence create bitterness in the survivors, and brutality in the destroyers. My own work tries to exalt both sides. A nonviolent transformation is not a seizure of power. It is a program that transforms relationships. The acid test of nonviolence is that in a nonviolent conflict, there is no rancor left behind, and in the end, the enemies are converted into friends. So I offer this as a model for us to work with in our own lives. I wish I was coming back in a week, could (laughs) compare our enemies' practice, you know, with these (laughs) different steps. But maybe, maybe we will um, meet again soon to to do that. So, yeah, read the quote again. Acts of violence create bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. My work aims to exalt both sides. A nonviolent transformation is not a program of seizure of power. It is a program of transformation of relationships. It is the acid test of nonviolence that in a nonviolent conflict, there is no rancor left behind, and in the end, the enemies are converted into friends. So this is possible. And we, I think we, we test this work in our ordinary, everyday, difficult people relationships. And then as we get more skillful, we can bring it out more and more into the world, and the world deeply needs it. So can think of yourself as in training 
with your ordinary difficult people in training to help the world with the more difficult people. So thank you very much. Yeah. Um, we often do forgiveness practice in association with loving kindness or metta practice, and it can be very powerful in relation to enemies. It's it's a tricky practice in some ways. I think, as many of you know, that uh, usually when we teach forgiveness practice, we um, we talk about the power of forgiving what either oneself or others have done that was harmful or, or unskillful in the past. And in doing so, we don't mean to say that it was okay that that happened. In other words, forgiveness doesn't mean moral, ex- moral uh, approval. It doesn't mean that we necessarily forget. It doesn't mean that we don't take past actions as a reason for acting in a different way in the future or in the present. So I think that when we talk about forgiveness, we're not condoning necessarily what happened. In a way, what we're doing is we are trying to transform our own reactivity about the past. In a way, we're, you know, I think Jack Kornfield has a line where he says, forgiveness is giving up the hope for a better past. And so I think that, and the other thing about forgiveness is I think we can't really uh, force it. It's more of a long-term intention to, to give up the enemy's posture. And it's a long-term intention that sometimes um, can take a lifetime for certain kinds of events. But again, I think what we can do is we can practice with forgiveness in ways that are not maybe as charged as the most charged of our uh, situations from the past. And so it's a beautiful practice and you know we often use the line like, if I have hurt anyone in word, thought, or deed, may I, uh, may I be forgiven. And, then we, and if anyone has hurt me in word, thought, or deed, may I, for, I, I intend to fully forgive that person. So it's a practice that we can do. We can do that for five minutes or ten minutes at the beginning of a sitting, at the end of a sitting. And it's a beautiful practice to do and it can really soften I think it goes along with some of, maybe along with what I was calling the second stage of sort of reflections. It's a set of ways that we can um, help sort of prepare the ground, but it's, it's a beautiful practice with enemies and uh, not so easy, right? Not so easy to do. Thank you. Can you say that little mantra again? Oh. One way to... One way to um, you know, actually, Sylvia told me it, the, the mantra. That I have a joke. I have a funny, funny thing about that. Uh, it's if I have hurt anyone in, in word, thought, or deed, may I be forgiven. When I do it, I sometimes bring the image of the person to mind. You know, I just say, if I have hurt anyone in worth, and usually on my little internal um, radar screen, an image of someone who has there been some recent difficulty with pops up, and that may be the case for you. Um, may I be forgiven, and if I have hurt anyone in word or thought or deed, um, let's see, did I get it reversed? 
may I be forgiven. And I, I forgive anyone who has hurt me in word, thought, or deed. People at Spirit Rock and elsewhere have been using that for quite a while. We thought originally it came straight from the old Buddhist text, but some research work by Sylvia showed that it actually came probably from someone reading a, a Jewish prayer manual in the uh, 1970s. <laughs> well, that was kind of it, but it's, it's a wonderful, it doesn't take anything away from it. And that intentionally and not intentionally is nice. Yeah. Yeah. If I have hurt anyone consciously or unconsciously, sometimes we say by word, thought, or deed as well. If I have hurt anyone consciously or unconsciously by word or thought or deed, may I be forgiven, please. That really comes from the Yom Kippur liturgy. Yeah. That's what Sylvia realized that at a certain point. She said, have I transmitted this to a generation of Buddhists so they think it's Buddhist. <laughs> she said, it's okay. <laughs> Stranger things have happened in cultural transmission. <laughs> Please, Robin. Um, another reflection that helps with compassion for the enemy to um, one is the Buddha saying that everybody has at one time been our mother or our brother or yeah. some beloved. And the other one is that they too have beloveds. They too yeah. have people who love them and care about them. Yeah. Did everyone hear? Yeah. Um, traditional Tibetan reflection that's, that's often done is that um, because of this, this would be based on a belief in rebirth, but that we haven't been in a relationship, a very dear relationship with every being over um, the countless eons of time, so that we've actually been in a relationship of being mother and son or daughter, you know, or whatever the relevant phrase is in the insect kingdom or whatever, <laughs> uh, with, with every being, that there's been that kind of intimacy, and it's, it really, or that we can, the other reflection was that we can reflect on that everyone has um, relationships of being beloved to some person. Because we tend, when we form the dualism, really to almost make the person a monster, just like those um, posters that are in the, the book Faces of the Enemy. It's almost like we do that, don't we, with people we're in conflict with. They, they appear on these, these images as, uh, you know, as these awful beings who are virtually outside of humanity, outside of civilization, and to reflect that this being was once a child, has innocence, has beautiful qualities, it was loved by a mother or father, and has people who care for this person. It's another step to sort of ease the dualism, isn't it? It's harder to have that dualism, please. I found it helpful Sometimes it's too big a leap to go from feeling contempt or yeah. anger to forgiveness. Yeah. So it takes steps. Yeah. So I can like go from contempt to annoyance and hang out. <laughs> <laughs> and then from annoyance, I might go to like you know grudging, you know acceptance that they might have a point, and then mm -hmm. I get closer and closer to mm -hmm. the forgiveness. Very skillful. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever get stuck at annoyance? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Thank uh, you. That's great. Yeah. Um, I practice, I do Buddhist practice as a Christian because it 
deepens and gives me tools yeah. to practice my Christianity. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I study and that's why I come here. Yeah. Um, in the last week of 2002, I had a dream. And I'd never have dreams that are instructive. I always have, you know, very fantasy kind of. This dream was very instructive. It said, uh, hold George W. Bush and his wife Laura in the light. And that was all. It was clear, and I woke up and wrote it down, and I was pissed. <laughs> because uh, uh, it runs against my political conviction. Yeah. But when something like that comes in a dream, I followed it. Yeah. And every day since then, I've held George W. Bush and his wife, Laura. And my wife says, well, no wonder Laura got included there. What would it be like living with that guy? <laughs> and uh, so I hold them in the light, and it's depolarized me around George W. Bush. Yeah, that's great. And uh, I still don't like what he does, but I'm not polarized because once a day I have this practice of holding him in the light, and also I secretly feel that I'm holding the United States of America in the light yeah. because he's the president. Yeah. So I get a little mileage out of that, but <laughs> <laughs> essentially I do it because I want to depolarize my own attitude. Yeah, that's beautiful. A beautiful example of you know exactly what the theme is, and finding w individual ways to to make this a real practice. And it also is a good reminder. It's something I was I, I had um, prepared a little bit, but I I, I had. Um, <coughs> Um, things I didn't I didn't explore, but it, I was um, reflecting some also on this is this is the core teaching of Jesus, very clearly to transform one's relationship with enemies, isn't it? You know, to go from an eye to an eye, to to um, you know, I guess the metaphorical way he talked about it was turning the other cheek. And also love thy enemy as thyself. Love thy enemy as thyself. So it's 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 really at the at the core of that. Uh, of that teaching, um, you know, being being with difficult people, but also uh, keeping on acting. I think that's really key. It's not um, we do the what's important is to do both the internal work, and when you do the internal work, then you can become more skillful outwardly you know, to um, to do that. So I thank you for that. Um, um, do we have? Do each of us have to wait for a dream to do that yeah. practice? <laughs> yeah, but we could probably. Contemplate um, people. We could do something like that as a, as a visualization, couldn't we? Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Um, well, I could keep on going for a long time. I'm, I'm aware that we're we're getting close to the time. Um, we, in fact, we're more than close to the time. We're, so. Um, Anyone who wants to stay afterwards and talk about enemies, <laughs> I'd be willing to. I'd like, um, but maybe, yeah, maybe we can explore it again another time because it's a very powerful area of practice. So, why don't we just sit for a moment and we'll um, we'll reflect. So if there was something that was helpful or inspiring from the 
the sitting, even not necessarily related to the theme, that, that an insight that came to you that's important. Or something related to the theme of working with difficult people or people we, we uh, make into enemies. In the particular of practicing, finding ways to make this, this real, and whether it's in the intention to have our work with enemies be a part of our practice or the different kinds of reflections we might do, or the attention to what actually is happening internally with enemies, the seeing of reactive patterns of anger or judgment, fear, sadness, and the long-term work with these patterns that we can do. And then the way, the skillful ways of bringing that into, into action, into our interactions. And seeing if there's an intention that comes out of the morning. And as we close, as we usually do, we recall and reflect that we practice very much for ourselves, but we also practice for others, for the larger community, for this world which is so deeply in need of transformation, healing, and having a different relationship to difficult people or enemies. And so may the fruits of our time together be dedicated to the transformation of all enemies into friends.